So welcome again. It's a little bit cool out there, isn't it? Would you call it cool? It's a nice New England morning. Crisp. In fact, somebody might ask, just how cold is it this morning? Somebody might ask. How cold is it? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, thank you. I, I have a couple of answers here for that. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, police tell a robber to freeze, and he does. Uh, or how about this? It was so cold that the Statue of Liberty put the torch inside her dress. <laughs> Or how about, um, it's so cold we had to chop up the piano for firewood. It only gave us two chords. <laughs> okay. And how about if you baked a cake, all you had to do was set it in the window for about two minutes, and it would be frosted. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, thank you. So, uh, by the way, before we get started, the kids are dismissed for grades one through four for Kids Bible Clubhouse. Thank you. So, we've got about 13 hours to go before 11.59 p.m., and over one billion people will be watching the ball drop from Times Square. Uh, so, that got me thinking about some of the history about this time ball, and uh, I got into it a little bit, so just be patient with me here. Uh, but it was kind of interesting. So the first time ball was built in England in Portsmouth Harbor in 1829 at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich in 1833. And these devices were large enough and high enough that they could be seen from the harbor or port and they were designed to help ship captains uh, keep accurate time. And between 1845 and 1902, time balls were erected at locations like San Francisco's Telegraph Hall, Boston State House, and so on. And still by the 19th century, these kind of impractical devices then were mostly on their way out or at least reduced to more decorative or symbolic role. And once the time signals could be sent to people, uh, to their clocks through wireless transmissions, fewer and fewer time balls were manufactured. So by 1908, their time had passed. Okay. <laughs> okay, just wanna, just wanna make sure you're there. Uh, now, one year before, 1907, they dropped an iron and wood ball with a 125-watt light bulbs. Five feet in diameter, weighed about 700 pounds, and from that date, every year, except for 1942 and 1943, they've had the time ball drop, except during that, those two years, there was what they called a dim-out in World War II. So now over the years, the time ball has undergone about five redesigns. And uh, tonight, they'll be using one that's about 12 feet in diameter, weighs almost 12,000 pounds, 
And uh, it's covered with almost 2,700 Waterford crystal triangles that vary in size. Um, and 288 of those will introduce the new theme this year, which is the gift of serenity. The previous design created for the millennial in the year 2000 was also Waterford crystals. And each of those triangles had a special designation. For example, hope for fellowship, hope for peace, hope for wisdom, hope for unity, hope for courage, and so on. And the name of that ball was the Star of Hope. Why would they have called the New Year's ball the Star of Hope? It is a new year coming, and it is a time that we think about hope, don't we? Um, it's a time for opportunity. It's a time for each of us to try to get a better handle on our future. And so I want us to look at for a few minutes Proverbs 17, verse 24. That reads, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And so what we see in this verse is that we do have an opportunity, don't we? To improve our future for the coming new year. The hope for our future really, if you think about it, depends on us and the Lord in our life. That hope doesn't lie in wishing upon a star, though, does it? Which is essentially what those triangles are on the star of hope. The hope for fellowship, peace, wisdom, courage, and so on on the time ball are based not upon promises, but upon a wish for what we'd like to see take place next year. Proverbs 24 is saying that the wise man has a powerful future waiting for him because he keeps his eyes on wisdom. And by contrast, the fool has his eyes on something else, his eyes on the ends of the earth. What's the difference between the two? And how can we become like the wise men and get the best God wants to have for us. So let's take a look at the fool first. The eyes of the fool, the proverb says, are on the ends of the earth. What does that mean? There's a story about a man who was picking a strawberry in a strawberry patch. He would no sooner pick one, and then he'd look up and see another strawberry a couple of rows away, and off he'd run to pick that berry. Has that ever happened to you when you're out picking something? I know what happens to me when I'm out doing some apple picking. Hey, over here is a better one. Over here, over here. You run around, right? And each one, and before you know it, your bag is getting pretty full. But you've been doing quite a bit of looking over the hill, looking around, looking for the next best apple, instead of kind of sticking with it. So just like the man picking the strawberries, his eyes were wandering around the field, looking for the easiest berry to find. And so, here's what the fool is like. 
always looking for the easiest berry in the patch, always seeking an easy way to get ahead in his life. He's the guy who invests in the future, let's say by buying lottery tickets, maybe can't seem to stay married, no person is ever good enough, can't keep a job, there's no job that's good enough for him or her. Always a rainbow waiting over the next hill. His eyes wander constantly to the ends of the earth, constantly comparing himself, his family, his job, his potential to something else or to someone else. And he's never satisfied, like the man who hurried from the bush to bush, or if you're out apple picking like me, he's constantly running from every aspect of his life always hoping that the next ring he grabs will be that brass ring. In the end, he's done less with his life than he could have. But by contrast, let's look at the wise man. He has two advantages over the fool. First, he's focused. Discerning people set their eyes on wisdom. The wise man isn't running all over the place looking for an easy way to live, uh, to live his life. He realizes that the only way to achieve success in life is by sticking to the task at hand. You can't build a championship in one day. Even the Patriots didn't build a championship in one day, did they? Um, nor can a single sales meeting transform a company into a success. A, week, uh, a weekend marriage, parenting seminar can't completely heal a struggling family. Even one sermon can't set a struggling church right or remove its troubles totally. You can't make success of life by looking for easy fixes. The greatest achievements can only be accomplished with consistent, focused effort. That is what the wise man does. He focuses on achieving one central objective. The main pursuit of the wise man is wisdom. So Solomon, who we know wrote Proverbs, was once asked by God to name the one thing he wanted. When Solomon asked for wisdom, God responded, in 1 Kings 3, verse 11 to 12. Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon learned from experience that wisdom gained him an advantage in life. It gave him an edge. And it was that advantage, that edge, that gave him his wealth, his power, and his position. Too many people believe that if they only had power, wealth, or influence, they'd be happy. And so they struggle to gain those things, but 
They don't have the wisdom to know what they really have. And so they never are satisfied with what they have. The discerning man sets his face toward wisdom. The second advantage, then, of the wise man over the fool is that he knows where to look for wisdom. Where did Solomon get his wisdom? He asked God. Why? Because wisdom comes from God. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask him, and he will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking, nor... And now, there are other places we can look for knowledge and information, isn't there? Other places we can look for what men value as wisdom. Those places may seem to be logical, but any other source other than God will eventually lead to contradictory advice because it will be based upon man's experience. Have you ever had contradictory advice? I used to get a lot of that when I was working, believe me. You had to sort through that. Spent a lot of time sorting through it. So, here's some examples of man's wisdom. Have you heard this? Many hands make light work, but too many cooks spoil the broth. How about clothes make the man, but we shouldn't judge a book by its cover? Or nothing ventured, nothing gained, but it's better to be safe than sorry. Or how about look before you leap, but he who hesitates is lost. And finally, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, but don't beat a dead horse. Okay. The wisdom of man has its weaknesses because man's wisdom is always based solely upon what mortal men and women can experience and observe. And because of this, our experiences will always be limited and our observations will only be able to see uh, so much, right? It's like a man wanting to see as far as he can and you climb a high mountain. I used to go up to the White Mountains quite a bit and climb some of those mountains, which are not easy, by the way. The East does not believe in switchbacks, if you've noticed. Well, the West does. So when you get up there, you've worked some to get there. And when you get there, how far can you see? You can see maybe the horizon, or you can see the next mountain over. On a clear day, I think the maximum is about 50 miles or so. But we're limited, aren't we? Uh, we can only see so far. But God is not limited. Uh, there are no limits to his vision. There are no boundaries to what he can see. He knows the beginning from the end. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, God tells us, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Everything God plans will come to pass, for God can do whatever he wishes. When we look to God for his wisdom in our lives, 
we're not only better off than the fool, we also show that we have the wisdom of God when we do what he asks us to do. Remember, Jesus once told a parable about how two men built their homes. Jesus ended the parable by saying, and everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand from Matthew 7, verse 26. Then Matthew 7, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We show that we have gained God's wisdom when we do what he asks us to do. That's why it's so important that we keep uh, exposing ourselves to his wisdom. What's his wisdom? His word. We have it in our hand. In church, Sunday school, life group studies, personal devotions, the more God's wisdom we can get into us, the greater our handle on the future God wants us to have. So, three ways to ensure a God-honoring new year for 2018. Number one, know God's wisdom. Number two, do God's wisdom. Number three, repeat one and two. (laughs) Know God's wisdom and do God's wisdom. Um, Do this again and again and again, uh, as often as you can. The key thing to remember is that both as individual Christians and as a church, uh, is that we have access not only to God's wisdom, but also to his power. Our ability to create a great new year for our lives isn't limited to what we know or what we personally can do with our lives. God's power and his working in our lives is the single most important advantage that we have. As the French Renaissance writer Francois Rebelais has observed, I place no hope in my strength, nor in my works, but all my confidence is in God, my protector who never abandons those who have put all their hope and thought in him. If we hold on to God, to his wisdom and his power, then we will succeed in the coming year. And we'll be able to grab hold of everything that God wants us to have. So earlier in the message, I talked about how each year is a time for hope. It's just a natural thing, a milestone. It's a time for opportunity, time for each of us to improve our future. And I also talked about the Millennium Time Ball actually being called, remember that star of hope for the Millennial Time Ball? But I'd like us to take a a few minutes now and turn to his word and just unpack God's views about true hope and uh, put some meat on the bones, if you will, provide some practical application for us. So can you open your Bibles to Romans 4, verse 18 to 21? If you're using one of the Bibles in front and underneath the chair in front of you, um, that's on page 942. 
And we'll read the passage. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, uh, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So, as Paul describes the hope of Abraham here, um, we see that uh, there's no human way that Abraham and Sarah could have a son. All hope was lost, wasn't it? And yet Abraham hung on with some hope. And isn't that the challenge for us today? How do we have hope when we do feel hopeless? How can we stay strong when we feel like giving up? And Abraham held on to hope only because he kept going back to what God had said. So shall your offspring be. Likewise, we want to see hope grow again in our hearts. And so we do need to go back to God's word all the time. And so some biblical principles here from this passage that God can use to give you and me hope in the midst of whatever hopelessness we might be experiencing right now. In order for our remaining time that we have left to be a little bit more practical, I'd like you to think about a hopeless situation perhaps right now in your own life as we go through some timeless truths. And then you can apply God's word to whatever you're facing. Could be a relational issue, some family friction perhaps, maybe a hopeless health situation, career crisis, financial fears, maybe something else. But as we walk through God's word, draw some encouragement from the words, uh, from, this is from Claire Booth Lucy. There are no hopeless situations, there are only people who have grown hopeless about them. So I have a few points here to make about these verses, starting with point one. Face the facts. First step, and that may surprise you a little bit, before you and I can find hope, we must first face the facts of our situation. Look at verse 19. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so to consider there means to literally uh, consider carefully by fixing one's eyes on something. Uh, it seems simple enough, but many people today either live in denial or with a sense that it's somehow not spiritual to assess the situation that they're in. Abraham knew how absurd it was for him to be able to father a child and his wife to be able to get 
pregnant. The word dead here is in the perfect tense, meaning it was a permanent condition. All of his reproductive abilities had died, and Sarah's womb was like a tomb. He was in need of a double miracle, if you will. Hebrews 11.12 says and confirms that Abraham was as good as dead. Friends, here's the obvious. Whenever you have faith or are called to have faith, there will always be obstacles and difficulties. Circumstances will always seem overwhelming. What's the truth about the situation you're in? Face the facts. Don't go into denial. You may need some help from another close person who can do some truth-telling with you. Whatever you need to do, the first step is to face the facts. The second point, deal with your doubts. It's natural to experience doubts, especially when you're discouraged and dismayed. Listen carefully. Doubts don't disqualify you, but they can certainly derail you if they're not dealt with. In the first part of verse 20, if you look at that, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. The word waver there means to be divided or to be separate. Similar to the meaning in James 1 verse 8 when we're told to not allow doubt to have the final word. We do at times, certainly all of us have some doubt. For Abraham, the doubts were there, and they were real, but he didn't allow them to take control. He knew that he was a pretty old goat, and his wife was infertile, but he didn't allow his mind to stay on these things. He didn't dwell on his doubts. And that reminds us of the situation in the book of Nehemiah when God's people were working on the wall with all their might and then suddenly they stopped because they allowed doubts to creep in, specifically when they took their eyes off God and instead started looking at all the rubble and rubbish around them. They wanted to give up. Listen to Nehemiah 4.10. There was too much rubble by ourselves We will not be able to rebuild the wall. So uh, we were on this disaster relief trip earlier in October, and uh, we're going from Fort Myers to Key West. It was a long day. We had to leave Fort Myers about 6 o'clock in the morning, and we arrived in Key West. We just had a choice to make, and our leader was very good. He gave us the choice of where we wanted to go. We felt like there was more of a need Our work was finished in Fort Myers. There was more of a need to go to Key West. And when we got to Key West, um, we started working on a house. But I think we started to feel like Fort Myers was almost a warm-up to Key West. There was so much damage in Key West, and there was a lot of rubble. And so did we start looking away from God, kind of becoming disheartened? I think maybe so. We were all pretty tired. And then as we journeyed back to the church we were going to be staying at in Key West, uh, late that afternoon, about 5 o'clock, we found ourselves in a five-hour traffic jam. Can you believe it? I don't think I've ever been in a traffic jam. I've been in 
several, but not quite five hours. Now, if you're going to become disheartened, seeing all this rubble around, seeing all the work that needs to get done, seeing the small team that we had, how can we even leave a dent here? But, and maybe I mentioned this at Thanksgiving, who else but God could send a person to us in that five-hour traffic jam? This woman who needed a ride. She got out of the car because everybody's sitting there. She was going to go visit some friends way back in the line. And then the line started moving, and she lost her ride. She's in our car with a couple of chaplains (laughs) for about four hours anyway. So I think that gave us kind of an uplift. Who can do this other than God in a situation like that? So... Let's not focus on the rubble, right? Um, You can focus on all the things going on in your life, all the baggage, the junk, or whatever you want to call it. Um, Then you can become discouraged. But let's focus on the God in our life instead of the rubble. Third point, meditate on the promises of God. After facing the facts and dealing with your doubts, then focus on the faithfulness of God. The only way I know how to find hope is to lock into God's promises. And notice in the phrase in verse 20, concerning the promise of God, we must always come back to these questions. What has God said about this? What promises has he made? Here's what David Martin Lloyd-Jones once said about faith. It must be anchored to the bare word of God, and nothing else whatsoever. If you think about it, Abraham had no one to talk to about this, and certainly no precedent to follow. All he had was the promise of God, and that was more than enough. And notice the word, uh, the promise, if you look through Romans 4 a little bit more, you'll notice that it appears five times. And think about your impossible situation again that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you now face the facts. You started, started to deal with your doubts. And now it's time to claim God's promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. <clears throat> Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Whatever you're struggling with, God has a promise for you. If you look in your concordance, you can find what you're struggling with and find many references to that in your Bible. The fourth point, allow God to fortify your faith. Um, And this is very encouraging. When we face the facts, deal with our doubts, meditate on the promises of God, God himself will fortify our faith. Uh, Look at the phrase in verse 20, but he grew strong in his faith. The word strong means to put power in, like putting gas in our uh, cars. Um, Aren't you glad that God doesn't expect us to have faith the size of a mountain? 
when we have the faith the size of a mustard seed, God can move those mountains. And when we exhibit even a little faith in a big God, God grows our faith. The question is not how little or how big your faith is. It's a question of how big is your God. The fifth point, give glory to God. Part of a problem when we feel hopeless is that we become consumed with ourselves. Instead of looking within, it's time to look above. Abraham did this as we see in the last part of verse 20. He gave glory to God. George Mueller says, There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Listen to this, folks. Faith begins where man's power ends. It's when we're in those tough, intense times that we give glory to God. We can give glory to God when we do what's right and fight for peace. John Stott has said we glorify God when we let God be God. We give him glory when we give him credits and when we put his promises into practice. The sixth and final closing point here is commit yourself to the character of God. The only way to find hope is to find safe harbor in God and his character. Verse 21 teaches us that because God is all-powerful and that he keeps his promises, we can, fully, we can be fully persuaded that he will do what he says he will do. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Um, And so it took Abraham 25 years, but he was completely convinced that God had the power to do what he had promised. Um, He considered everything carefully, and because of God's character, he chose to believe. And so have you been waiting a long time for God to act? It's not because God doesn't respond. He's powerful enough to do anything, isn't he? The issue is ultimately whether something is his will or not. And if it is, then it becomes a matter of his timing. So we must fight for faith by not dwelling on our doubts. God will grow our faith and reveal more of himself as, uh, to us when we step out in faith and commit to his character. Philip Yancey has a good definition of faith. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. If we wait until all the circumstances are in our favor, we'll wait forever. So let's go back to Romans 4 and pick up now in verse 22 to 25. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered to death so our sins can be forgiven. The cost was paid at the cross, And his resurrection is like a receipt that we have received his righteousness. 
But this is available only for those who have accessed it by faith. It's been accomplished for you, but it must be applied, must be received in order for this amazing transaction to be activated in your life. You don't have to wait to get to heaven to enjoy the hope God wants you to have today. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. The New Testament, in the New Testament, the word hope occurs one time before the resurrection of Jesus. One time. But 70 times after Jesus was raised from the dead. Clearly, hope comes from the resurrection. The only question remains is this. Have you accepted what Christ has done for you? The answer to that question is the difference between heaven and hell, salvation and condemnation, eternal life or eternal death, hope and hopelessness. So what impossible situation are you facing? What mountain is looming over you? It's possible to find hope. It is possible to find hope in a hopeless world, isn't it? God has made a way for you and me, but you first must submit to him as your, as his, as your Savior and then live under his lordship. He was delivered over death for your sins. That's why he came. A key phrase is found in Romans 4, verse 24. Who believe in him? And are you ready to receive what only he can give you? When you commit to him by faith, his righteousness will be credited to your account, and you will become a son or daughter of Abraham. So I want to have a prayer this morning. You bow your heads.